0: Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read one verse here and then we're going to be looking at a lot of verses uh, throughout the Bible. I'll have them on the screen. If you have time, you can flip there. If not, just jot them down. But 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verse number 10, the Bible says, this is Paul talking, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. For the last several weeks, we've been in this series entitled, I Hate Religion. And we've been looking at what Jesus really expects from us his children. Now, there are three topics that, you know, Thanksgiving coming up. There are three topics that if you discuss them at your Thanksgiving table, it's going to produce an argument. Politics is one of them. You start talking politics at the dinner table this Thanksgiving, I guarantee you somebody's uncle's going to say something stupid that upsets you and you're going to go off. Maybe you're the stupid uncle to say something, I don't know. But politics is very divisive. Football is very divisive. You, you come to my house and start talking about the Hokies, and we're going to have words. You know, April asked, uh, not April, Alexa, April didn't ask me who she could marry. Uh, Alexis was asking me a couple weeks ago, she goes, Dad, uh, what if when I get married, the guy I marry is a Virginia Tech fan? I said, You're not going to marry him. <laughs> well, what if he went to Virginia Tech? Then you're not going to marry him. But what if you're not going to marry him? Well, what if he's a UNC fan? Yeah, that's fine, but football is very divisive, and religion is very divisive. When you, when you talk about those the topics, people have their camp that they refuse to get out of, and they buckle down and fight about it. And so most people tend to not talk about politics and not talk about religion. Of course, we've got to talk about football, because, I mean, what else is there without football? And so we tend to avoid these topics, Uh, but just because they are touchy topics doesn't mean that we should avoid them. So we have been talking about religion, and to keep it simple, and to keep conflict from from coming up and keep conflict to a minimum, we have defined what religion is. And we have said that religion is man-made paths to God whether it's a man-made path to find salvation. And religion dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had partaken of the fruit and had sinned and had fallen and they'd they'd realized they were naked. They covered themselves with fig leaves trying to cover their sin, trying to cover their shame. That was a man-made path to try to get back to God, and it's just gotten worse throughout the years. And so we have these man-made paths to get to God for salvation, and we see them in all kinds of different religions, where people talk about works, or they talk about different things you have to do, but we also see these man-made paths to get to God after salvation. We see it in the Bible, too. Paul dealt with this in a group called the Judaizers. We talked about this last week. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish believers who had been converted. And they believed that you came to God by grace, through faith, accepted his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross as payment for your sin. And that's all you had to do to get saved. But to stay saved, you had to obey all the Jewish religions and traditions. If you were a Gentile, you had to get circumcised. You had to obey all the, the the feasts and the sacrifices, and you had to be you had to behave a certain way to keep your salvation and earn the favor of god and so these paths these are things that we have created to span the gap between man and God, again, whether to get to God for salvation or to please God after salvation and find favor with him and the first week we looked at the path of the man-made path of self, the religion of self. Every true path to God, every true path to freedom leads us to some necessary dead ends, and one of them is the dead end of self-trust, where we have to realize we cannot trust in ourselves To find our way back to God because we're, we're sinful no matter what we do. We're just, our heart is desperately wicked. And so we have to end the, 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 we have to find the dead end of self trust and we often have reached the dead end of self effort. And then last week we looked at the religion of legalism. This is where we, we work and we strive to please God and to live the Christian life in our own strength. And here's what we saw that we need to learn. God's love and God's fellowship is never based on what we do. It's not like your driving record. You know, you don't, your insurance is based on how you drive. And, you know, our house, we, we have Allstate. We've had Allstate now for 20-odd years, and we've been with them forever. And sometimes our, our payment has been a little bit higher because somebody, I'm not going to name names, but it's me, uh, would tend to get some speeding tickets someone else i 'm not going to name names would tend to get some not wearing a seat belt ticket and uh, so we had sometimes where our our premiums were higher and sometimes where they 're lower and you know it 's based on what we do and then they gave us. One of those little uh, things that you plug into your car and they can monitor your driving. I know a couple of you here, some of you here were like, why would you do that? Uh, Because now Big Brother's watching you. And so, but we did it and uh, our rate went up. So I took it out uh, because somebody who drives the van all the time drives terribly. And so I took that thing out and put it in, you know, somebody else's car that never drives. And so we just left it alone. But your driving record's based on your performance. Your fellowship with God is never based on your performance. God's not going to love you any more or any less because you work really hard. God's not going to love you any less because you, you sin and mess up, because we all sin. Even the Apostle Paul, you know, Paul, known as the greatest New Testament Christian, said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul said, the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do them. The things I'm not supposed to do, that's what I find myself doing. I am the biggest sinner there ever was. And God didn't love him any less because of it. So our performance never dictates that God's love for us. Religion looks at the deeds that we do and distorts our view of God because we focus on being good instead of focusing on, on being with Him. Jesus gave us a clear picture of what His mission was on earth. Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to wait on those who would work hard enough for him to take notice. He didn't come to seek out those who, who were who were perfect and sinless and trying real hard. He came to seek us. He came to save us. He came to do all the work that was needed for salvation, and all the work that was needed. For fellowship. Jesus stood opposed to the religious crowd of the day, and the religious crowd of the day hated him for it. Study the gospel. The only people Jesus ever rebuked were the religious people. He rebukes his disciples because they're saying, you know, we don't want these poor orphans coming here. We need to, we need to keep them away. And Jesus rebuked them saying that no, we, don't, we don't keep people from coming to me. That's exactly what needs to come. He rebuked the Pharisees. Who did, he, who did he hang out with? Sinners. Publicans. People who are caught in the very act of sin. He's, he's helping and spending time with. And the religious crowd hated him for it. Because he stood opposed to religion. His purpose was never about conforming to a bunch of rules and regulations. His purpose was always about conforming to about transforming us into his image. He was only interested in freedom. See, religion makes us believe that we can only come to God if we conform. Religion makes us think that God only accepts us when we have it all together. And that's a lie of Satan. He lies and tells us God expects us to be perfect. God expects us to always be right. God expects us to understand all the Bible. And when we, when we do that, when we, when we do all the things that we're supposed to do, and we check all the check marks, and we, we follow all the rules, and even if we're not on it, but we're doing the right things, and we do enough of them, then God will love us. But the Bible says God loves us as we are. He came to us as we are. He loves to transform us. He loves to make us righteous, and, bring, and we bring nothing to him to earn any of it. He gives us all that we need. And we said last week, to accomplish this, we have to ask ourselves two questions on a regular basis. What do I believe, and what is the truth? If what you believe doesn't line up with what is true, then your belief needs to change. And what is true only comes from, from the Word of God. So to find out what is true, we have to go to the Bible. See, the Bible isn't a list of regulations to follow. The Bible is a love letter from God to us. It tells us who we are and how to find out who we are. See, religion works against that. It tries to keep us from discovering what God really says about who we are. Religion stands opposed to a relationship with God. Knowing who you are in Jesus is revealed not through a religion we obey, but through a relationship with God that we enjoy. See, religion reveals our inferiority. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, about this morning the religion of inferiority. See, inferiority means less less important or less valuable. It means acting in a way that is comparatively poor or mediocre. Here's what what I'm saying. If you believe that you are of low importance to God, if you believe that you are of poor quality to God, If you believe that you are lesser value to God than someone else because they do more and have more and give more and you believe that you are less than worthy, you are going to start acting that way. And God never intended for his children to live with an inferiority complex. He never intended for us to feel substandard. And any religion... Or any belief system that tries to, you to get, that tries to get you to think that you are substandard or are not worthy has zero foundation in truth and zero foundation in the word of God. It comes straight from hell. It comes from the father of lies. God has always intended for his children to be free. To discover ourselves to define to find our role and our purpose in life and be empowered to fulfill it. See, the religion of inferiority makes us believe that we're less than enough. That we fall short. You know, we, it makes us think that to overcome our shortcomings that we have to do something to close the gap between us and God. You know, I read a blog <coughs> a couple weeks ago about a pastor who was a counselor at a teen camp and one night Uh, after one of the sessions, he was doing some counseling and a girl came to him and they were sitting on the the edge of the stage there talking. And she was was kind of feeling overwhelmed. She was kind of feeling not good enough and kind of just dealing with a lot of stuff, a lot of issues in her life. And so the pastor asked her, he said, uh, on a scale of zero to ten, where do you think you stand in terms of God accepting you? The girl thought for a minute, and she says, probably a three. I think probably God accepts me about 30% of the time. So let me ask you, what's your rating? On a scale of zero to ten, how often do you think that God accepts you? If your answer is anything less than ten, you're wrong. Because as God's children, we are already always accepted. But here's the problem. If it's anything less than 10, then it is impossible for you to be truly intimate with God. Because we reject those who reject us. We run from those who don't accept us. And so if you see yourself as not accepted by God, then you're going to reject Him. You will never Be truly intimate with Him because you will never truly trust Him. You reject the God that you think rejects you. And look, we've all heard about God's unconditional love. I've preached about it. We've heard other people preach about it. But if you don't believe that God accepts you 100% of the time, you can never fully accept His love. And God will not force His love on you. It has to be accepted. And until you understand that, then inferiority will be one of the enemy 's best tools. I watched a video recently on YouTube. This hypnotist was doing a show, and he called these four people up on stage, and you know he, he hypnotized them and you know had them you know watch the thing, and they, they all fell asleep on stage, standing up, and then he, he told each one of them to act as a different animal when he snapped his fingers. And so he told him which animal to act like, and so he snaps his fingers, and one of them starts barking like a dog, one of them starts meowing like a cat, one of them starts oinking like a pig, there's a cow up there. And so each one of them was acting like something that they were not. They began acting in a way that was very different than what they were. How many Christians do that on a daily basis? We're supposed to be one thing supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be a saint. We're supposed to be a masterpiece of God, but we try to mimic behaviors that we think are those things. We all want to be saints, but we think it's too hard. We all want to be holy, but it takes too much effort. So we imitate what we are told we're supposed to be. But Christianity isn't about imitation. Christianity is about transformation. See, religion deceives us into making us believe we can only come to God when we have it all together, when we have all of our deeds stacked up. The devil wants us to believe that God only accepts people who are faultless, even though that's contrary to what the Word of God says teaches us. The Bible tells us that once we are saved, once we, are, we accept Christ, his, his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sin, then we are in Christ. But the devil tries to make us think that Christ isn't sufficient enough to change us. And so most of us have accepted a false identity, a false concept of what it means to be a Christian, to act like a Christian, and a knowledge of who you are is the most important thing you can understand in Christianity. Jesus said that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Freedom and truth work together. Freedom comes from the truth, and freedom comes with the person who is the truth, Jesus Christ. Most Christians today they have an inferior a spiritual inferiority complex we see ourselves as a saved sinner trying to do our best for God and it sounds noble that doesn't sound bad that sounds noble but it isn't biblical so why does it sound right because it's what we've heard for years and years and years from our culture from our culture I'll show you what I mean Who is LeBron James? I heard somebody say something. He's a basketball player, right? All right, all right. I want to ask a question. Let's get an answer. Who is LeBron James? Basketball player. Who is Tom Hanks? He's an actor. Who is Taylor Swift? A singer. See what you did there? You define them by what they do. You do the same thing to yourself. You define yourself by what you do. If someone met you on the street and said, who are you? Most of us, of course, would say, well, we give our name. But after that, what else? You start telling them what you do. We define ourselves based on what you do. But you are more than what you do. You are not defined by what you do. You are defined by who you are and whose you are. You are more than your job. You're more than your failures. You're more than your faults. You're more than your successes. You're more than your athletic ability. You are more than your achievements. Our culture tells us we're defined by our performance, and when our performance slips, which it will, we are all left with inferiority. Behavior doesn't determine identity. Birth determines your identity, and for the child of God, your identity is found by rebirth. Look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 15. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things are passed away. What is, when we say someone passed away, what do we mean? They died. So Paul's saying, your old self is dead. It's been killed by the grace of God. Old things are passed away. Look, all things have become new. Anyone who is born again, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new creature. And the root word for creature is create. And create is a powerful word. In the beginning, God created Everything out of nothing. He didn't improve on it. He made it completely new. Out of nothing, He made something. That means when you were born again, God didn't improve on you. He made you completely new. He made you a new person. He gave you a new birth. And the religion of inferiority, it blinds you to who you are in Jesus, to who you are after your new birth. It will hide what you've been given and make you feel inferior to everything the Bible says about you and everything the Bible promises you. So who are you in Jesus? What defines you? What does God say about you now that you're a new creature? Now that you are born again. Now that you are in him. There's a few things it says. First of all, God says, you are a saint. You are a saint. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Paul gives us some pretty impressive information about who we are as believers. He says, first of all, you are sanctified. That means you are set apart for a purpose. God has taken you from where you were and taken you to where he wants you to be because he has a purpose for you. But then he says, you are a saint. The saint is the Greek word hagios, and it means a most holy thing. We have trouble seeing ourselves that way. That's why I pick on the song, Sinner Saved by Grace, because it distorts who we really are. I look at myself as a sinner saved by grace, Uh, someone unworthy who's just trying real hard to please God, but God looks at me and says, you're no longer a sinner, you are now a saint. You are a most holy thing. Once I accepted the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I stopped being seen by God as a sinner. I am seen as a saint, as a holy thing. And look, I'm not a saint because I'm able to perform some miracle. I am a saint because I am a miracle. I was dead and now I'm alive because Jesus made me that way. He sanctified me. He made me holy. He did it all. Being born again gives you a new identity. No longer are you a saint, a sinner trying to get to God. You have been made a saint by God. You're not, you're not a saint based on how you act. You are, not, you are a saint based on who you are in Jesus. You are a saint based on your relationship with Him. And look, I understand, it may be uncomfortable to say, but you are a saint. Second thing the Bible says you are is, you are His masterpiece. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in and walk in them. The word workmanship is the Greek word pomia. It's where we get our English word poem. And when people write a poem, it's not something they just jot down real quick, they take time. They pour over it, they're proud of it. We think of workmanship as something that you make, like maybe a chair or, or a cabinet, but that's not what the meaning is. The word "pomia" literally means a precious artifact. You were made and made new by God, and God makes everything good. You're more than a chair to God. You're a work of art. Your masterpiece to the Creator. Something keeps shocking me. I'm not sure if someone's got a timer there. I don't know what time it is. got time. Anyway, so you are are a work of art, a masterpiece of the Creator. But there's some other things you are. Thirdly, you are righteous and holy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God and Him. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were made righteous. Not because of anything you've done. And see, we all struggle with this because we know us. I'm sitting here saying, you're righteous. And you're like, you wouldn't have thought that last night when you saw what I was watching on TV. doesn't matter what you do. Again, we're going to get to this. I'm not saying you can live your life however you want to live. But you're not righteous because you act righteous. You're righteous because Jesus made you righteous. He took your sin and gave you his righteousness. You were made righteous at salvation. You are not righteous because you act that way. You are righteous because he is. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because we earned it. There's something else that you are. You are fully accepted by God. Look at Ephesians one chapter one verse six. It says, Wherefore receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God? You do not have to change a thing to be accepted by God. It has never and will never be based on what you do. It has always been based on what He did for you and who you are in Him. You are fully accepted by God no matter what. Now you may be sitting there thinking, I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like a masterpiece. I don't feel righteous and holy. I don't feel fully accepted by God don't want to be harsh but your feelings don't matter because your feelings aren't based on fact your feelings aren't what matter, it's the truth of God that matters, so you have to make a decision are you going to be ruled by your feelings or are you going to be led by the truth and again, we struggle with, oh, I'm not righteous and holy because we don't act righteous and holy. And again, you know, Paul even says that he, he struggled with sin and he struggled with things. And here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. You know, we always say, well, I'm righteous and holy, but I still sin. Why do I still sin? Because let's say, how many of y'all are leading right now a sinless life? Good. Because if you raise your hand, I'm going to say, well, you're a liar. So there we go. Boom. We, we are When you were saved... That old man, it's what we call the sin nature. The problem with that is the word sin nature is never found in Scripture. But we call it our sin nature. It's your flesh. It's your heart. It's who you were raised. It's your, your personality, what you were raised to do. Your, your sin nature, when you were saved, your sin nature was killed. A new nature moved in. But that flesh still lives there. So we struggle with our flesh. That's what Paul said, I have to die daily. That's why Paul said, you know, should we, should we continue in sin? Because he's talking about grace and how God's forgiven us. And he says, should, since God's forgiven us, and since we're made righteous in his, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and it's not based on what we do, but based on what he's done for us, we can just live how we want to live and sin how we want to sin. Paul said, God forbid. See, the thing is, when you're truly made righteous by God, you want to live righteous for God. When you're truly made holy by God... You want to be holy for God. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be sinless. Because we've all got this world to live with. Me and April were talking about this this week. And I was upsetting her. Because I'm like, you know, once you get saved, the old nature is killed. The new nature comes in. So as a believer, we do not have to sin. Jesus even said this. Jesus said, whenever you're tempted, I make a way of escape. So as a believer, when I sin, I choose to sin. I can live a sinless life, but I'm not going to because the flesh is very powerful. The culture is very powerful. And I'm like, well, what if you took someone who was took a, took a six-year-old, they got saved, and you put them in a bubble. And they had no influence from anyone on the outside. They just got food and water through a little slot and door. They never watched TV. They never got on the internet. They never had all the, you know, they never had to worry about sharing. Could they live a sinless life? And we're like, you know what, probably not. Because when they get older, they're going to get mad at God because they're stuck in a bubble. So we're always going to struggle with sin. We're always going to struggle with that old man. Our nature's gone, but the flesh is still there. So I'm not saying that because you're made righteous, live how you want to live. Because here's the truth. If you're made righteous, you're going to want to live righteous. If you're made holy, you're going to want to live holy. You're going to want to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God. Because you sin, you never lose your salvation. You never lose your standing with God, but you can lose your fellowship with God. And the worst thing to happen to a believer is to lose their fellowship with God. You know, we were talking about the story of the prodigal son in Sunday school this morning. We all know the story. Son comes to his dad says, Dad, I don't want to live here anymore. Your rules are too, too harsh. Give me what's coming to me and I'll leave them away. And he takes half his money. He goes on his way the prodigal son. He lives a horrible life, lives riotous living, uh, you know, waste all his money. There's a famine in the land. Famine wasn't his fault. Being stupid wasn't his fault, so there's a famine in the land. He finds himself serving pigs, wishing he could just eat the, st- the of from the pigs. And he comes to himself and says, I want to go home to dad. Not, not to be restored to dad. I want to go back and be a son. He goes, I'm just going to go back and maybe, if I'm lucky, I can be a servant in my father's house. He repented of his sin, stopped going where he was, came home. His father sees him afar off, which means dad's looking. Now, in this, in this age, his dad had no idea what had happened to his son. He took his money and gone to a far country. He could have died, and the dad would have never known, because there's no ID, there's no FBI to track him down and run his fingerprints and dental records. His son could have died, and his dad would have never known, but his dad was still looking. When his dad sees him, he runs, he hugs him, he kisses him. The son said, God, Dad, I've I've sinned against you in heaven. He's going to say, let me be your servant. And the dad shuts him down, says, bring a robe, put it on him. Bring a ring, put it on his finger bring shoes, put on his feet, kill the fatted calf, we're going to have a party tonight. But there's another person in that story, and it's the older brother. The older brother is the religious person. He's obeyed all the rules. He's done everything he was supposed to do. He's checked his boxes, he's done everything right. He comes to dad furious. Why are we throwing a party for this guy? And the father is just like, what was lost is found. We're not going to be upset about what your brother did. We're going to rejoice at your brother's home. But the brother, the older brother, could never get over it. So in this story, the person that we look at as the unrighteous one, the sinner, he's invited in with the father. The religious person who did everything right, he's left outside. Because it's not based on what you do. It's based on whose you are. And the sinner realized his sin, repented of his sin, came back to the Father and was accepted. While he was living in sin, he was separated from the Father. He was still the Son. He was still loved. He was still accepted. But his fellowship was broken. He had to come back to God to, to receive that forgiveness and receive that acceptance, and he began to live righteous and live holy because that 's what God had made him, and that 's what it is for us you can yes, as a believer, you can live any way you want to live, but as a believer, the way you want to live is going to change drastically. so the only way to co- to combat lies is with truth. The believer has to consider that considers himself a sinner saved by grace, is following the religion of inferiority. And I know it's common for believers to lapse back into their old, wrong patterns or old, wrong thinking of of ways, but it's time to wake up to your new identity. Stop listening to the lies of the devil that say you will have to act better to be accepted. Start living in your new identity as a saint, a masterpiece, righteous, And accepted by God. Remember that story I told at the beginning about those four people who were hypnotized and started acting like animals? When they came out of their trances, they were embarrassed. So why did they do it? Why did they act that way? Because they temporarily believed a lie about their identities. Many Christians believe the same thing about their identities. They think they must act like a holy Christian... To please God, and that's why they struggle with the same sins over and over and over. Because the deceiver has convinced them they are nothing but sinners, so they have to act like sinners. It's time to wake up to who you are in Christ and what God has done for you. You are not just a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint who has a spirit of Jesus living inside of them. So stop buying the lies that cause you to act inferior to what God has created you to be. That is religion, and it will never please God.